Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us in our continued discussion and investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. It's a remarkable fact, but the Christian Church, which claims to be based on the Bible and the teaching of Jesus recorded in Scripture, is divided against itself. There are currently hundreds of different denominations, all claiming to get their truth out of the Bible, their doctrines out of Scripture, and yet unable to agree with each other, and having broken fellowship, they now form separate denominations with different labels and titles. Now, how does this fit with Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10? Paul says in that verse, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you should be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And where Paul there said that you all agree, the text literally reads that you all speak the same thing. Now, it must be clear to the casual observer even that the current situation in Christendom has fallen a long way from this ideal given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Obviously, he expected the church to be united. He expected the Christians to have the same views and the same doctrines, to speak the same thing and to be perfectly united in one judgment. In another of his letters, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, in the following verses, Paul said that Christians are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, Paul said, and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That passage of Scripture might be described as Paul's appeal for unity on the basis of those seven unities, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what has happened then to create such extraordinary divisions in the world of Christendom. Could it perhaps be that we have abandoned these very unities that Paul says would create the unity of the church which we desire and which we really ought to have? You remember in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, Paul says that Christians have the mind of Christ. And here in Ephesians 4, he appeals for one spirit and one body and one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all. Let's start with the last of those great unifying features of the church as Paul envisages it. He spoke of one God and one Father over all. Now, is it true that Christians have maintained a firm grasp of the unity of God as taught by Jesus and the Bible on which he based his theology? That 77% of our Bible we call the Old Testament. In the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, we have some of the most important instructions ever given by God to his people Israel. Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 reads as follows, 
Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord our God has commanded me, that's Moses in this context, to teach you, so that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it might be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now that famous first commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, had been repeated on several occasions in this very same book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, we read this, To you, Israel, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is no other beside him. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. And in verse 39 of that same fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, we hear this, Know therefore today, Israel, and take it to your heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. I'm sure you know that this great central truth about religion, that God is one, is repeated numerous times in the Hebrew Bible. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God said, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. Now, if we were to combine the many statements about the oneness of God in the Hebrew Bible, we would come up with the following propositions. The Lord, he is God, there is none other beside him. He is God in heaven and on earth below, there is none other. I am he and there is no God beside me. I am the Lord and there is none other. Beside me there is no God. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? And in the New Testament, the last 25% of our Bible, which gives us the Christian faith as it developed out of its roots in the Hebrew Bible, we read the following. God is one and there's no one else beside him. You, Father, are the only true God, the one who alone is God. The God of the Jews and the Gentiles is one. There's no God but one. There's but one God, the Father, one God and Father who is over all the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one God, the only God. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Messiah Jesus. All those texts were drawn from the Old and New Testaments together, and they give us a very clear picture of the great central cardinal doctrine of all Scripture that God is one. This plain information forms the backbone of Scripture. It's the heart of the Christian creed, and it is genuine biblical monotheism, belief in one God, belief that God is one. But what comes over unambiguously from those texts is that one person only is the one God of monotheism. Listen to the words of Jesus, You, Father, are the only true God, the one who alone is God, John 17, verse 3, and John 5, 44. Well, you may be wondering then, what is the status of Jesus? 
Well, the biblical answer to that question, of course, is that he is the Son of God. All sons, of course, are subordinate to their fathers. To be a son means to be the production of a father, and the case is exactly that with Jesus. In Luke 1.35, we find the origin of Jesus described when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that the creation in her womb of a unique son would be the production of the Messiah. It is because of that miraculous conception, to use the words of Gabriel, precisely because of that miracle in the womb of Mary that Jesus is entitled to be called Son of God. Just as Adam was the direct production of the Father, and Adam is also called Son of God in the Bible, so Jesus is the beginning of the new human race. The new humanity is created in Jesus. He is the first of God's begotten children. He himself was begotten in the womb of Mary. Matthew 1.20 says it plainly. When Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been begotten in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's where the begetting of the Son of God occurred in that miraculous conception effected by God in the womb of his mother Mary. Have you noticed First John 5 verse 18? We know that no one who is begotten of God sins, but he who was begotten of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. There Jesus is referred to as the one who is begotten by God, and he's the one who keeps the Christians safe. Jesus was the begotten Son, uniquely begotten Son of God, and it was by that miracle effected by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary that Jesus became the Son of God. That's the plain teaching of Matthew 1 verse 20 and Luke 1 verse 35. And it's also exactly what we would expect from the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, we read in regard to the famous descendant of David, who is to be the Messiah, that God is going to be his father, and he will be a son to God. There's the origin of the expression, son of God. Also in Psalm 2, you'll find that God has begotten the son. Jesus then is begotten in time. There are certain church traditions which seem to indicate that there was never a time when Jesus was not the Son. That's really an amazing teaching in view of this plain evidence from Scripture. To be begotten means to be produced in time. To be begotten means to have a beginning. And Jesus indeed was the Son of God, uniquely begotten, uniquely created and brought into being in the womb of Mary. Luke 1 verse 35. There's a reference in Acts 13, verse 33, to the beginning of the life of Jesus. God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. There we see that God raised up Jesus, meaning that he produced him, put him on the scene of history, and made him the key figure in the nation of Israel. Just as Pharaoh had been raised up for a special purpose, so here the Son of God is raised up, and it's at that point that God is said to beget the Son. Psalm 2 is quoted as a fulfillment 
of the production of Jesus by supernatural conception and begetting. In Acts 13.34 we have a reference to the resurrection of Jesus as a subsequent event. Notice the two events in the career of Jesus. First, his begetting at his birth or his conception, and secondly, his resurrection from the dead. Acts 13.33 speaks of his initial coming into being, his begetting in the womb of his mother. But the next verse, Acts 13.34, speaks of God raising Jesus from the dead. I hope you'll notice, incidentally, that Jesus had to be raised from death. Jesus, in fact, was dead. He was three days in the heart of the earth, he said. He had not yet ascended to his Father on the Sunday when he appeared to the disciples, but he ascended to the Father after that. But he had to be raised from the dead, just as Christians also will have to be raised from the dead to take part in the future kingdom of God on the earth when Jesus returns. We have an article we'd like to offer you for your Bible study at home entitled, Who in the Bible is the One God? I think you'll find this illuminating as it links the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, with the New Testament. Jesus, in fact, quoted the creed that we started this program with, the great creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Jesus quoted that very creed proving that his belief system was built on and rooted in the Hebrew Bible on which he'd been raised and reared. Remember in your study of the Bible and of the Christian faith and of your relationship with Jesus that Jesus was a Jew who must be understood in the light of his own first century Jewish background. It's important to remember Jesus' Jewish roots in the Old Testament. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.